Australia's Uranium Opportunities by Keith Alder Recorded by Logan Smith with the permission of the Alder family. Chapter 2 My Atomic History After graduating in metallurgy at the University of Melbourne in 1942 and spending the remainder of the war years, except for a short period of army service, in research on special metals for radar valves, tungsten and molybdenum, I spent three years lecturing at Newcastle Technical College, New South Wales. Then, like so many other Australians in the immediate post-war years, my wife and I decided to go overseas to see the world and broaden our experience. So at the beginning of 1949, off we went to England. There I took the best job I could find, which was with the British Ministry of Supply, Armament Research Establishment, located at Woolwich Arsenal, southeast of London. I was recruited after an interview in the Civil Service Commission, London, with Dr Les Northcote, Superintendent of Metallurgical Research, called SMR for short. All the senior officers were known by the initials of their titles. Northcote explained that he was interested in me because of my experience with rare metals, and asked what did I know of the metallurgy of beryllium, which I replied, nothing. He commented, neither do we, but would you like to help us find out? He was also interested in my knowledge of electronics, which had come from an interest in radio communication since the age of 10. It turned out later that there were many little jobs in which I could help with the electronics, and in fact I spent quite a lot of time helping other members of the team I joined with electronic devices for their work. For example, I made up their first Geiger counter for Dr. D.T. David Lewis, later to be the government chemist in the UK. As a result of the interview, I was appointed very quickly as a senior scientific officer, temporary, in the Ministry of Supply. I became established, i.e. permanent, in 1950, but left to return to Australia for personal reasons at the end of 1950, but only after a very full and interesting two years of work on metals new to me. I reported for work only two weeks after arrival in England and went straight into the problems of beryllium metallurgy. I did not realise till later that the short delay in appointment was for the authorities to clear me for security reasons. Incredibly quickly, by the way. I was to find out later that clearances could take several months sometimes. Beryllium is one of the lightest metals and although strong, it is almost always nearly as brittle as glass. My assignment was to make it readily machinable so that it could be made into a somewhat complex and delicate shape but I didn't know for some months what the beryllium was for. It turned out that I was working on part of the neutron source for Britain's first atomic bomb, which was successfully tested at Montebello in 1953. It is easy to be critical now, as many are, particularly of those born since World War II, who find the dawn of the atomic age hard to understand. But in 1949, Britain was determined to catch up in atomic technology. She had led the world in research on the atom, particularly through the work of Lord Rutherford and his team at the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge through the 1930s, but had given all her results, secrets and experts to the United States for the Manhattan Project to produce the bomb. And post-war, the Americans were showing signs of keeping all the results of that project to themselves. It was all highly secret, classified, of course, including any prospects for civil use. 
declassification of civil atomic energy didn't start till the Atoms for Peace statement of President Eisenhower in December 1953. And it was not really implemented until August 1955, with the first Geneva Conference on the Peaceful Uses of Atomic Energy. But the military secrecy has never been relaxed. And in the immediate post-war period, Britain felt it essential that she should retain her position as a world power. So the British put together a team under Dr William Penny, later Lord Penny, to start their project to build and test their own atomic explosives. Initially, they based the nucleus of the team at Woolwich Arsenal, southeast of London, within the existing organisation of the Armament Research Establishment, to start work on the project and to design their future atomic weapons research establishment, later the AWRE Aldermaston. Woolwich Arsenal was a fascinating place. It is gone now, I believe, but I hope the British preserve the best of the historical artefacts with which it abounded. Many of the buildings housing superseded technologies were still there. For example, the fabrication shops for the enormous guns of World War I battle cruisers, wound with miles and miles of steel tape under tension. The arsenal dated from the time of Drake, when warships were built at Woolwich Dockyard, a little further up the River Thames, and some guns were cast at the arsenal and dragged up the riverbank to the dockyard. Some of the posts installed to stop cycling on footpaths were these early cannon, stuck muzzle down into the ground. I did not see more than a small fraction of this historic place. Only what could be reached in short lunchtime walks. There was one walk I took frequently, which went through the climatic storage area, consisting of huts separated by high earth banks, in which explosives were stored under simulated climatic conditions. It was necessary to go through a guard post to traverse this area, and to check in all smoking materials with the guard. Twice during my watch at Woolwich there was a loud thump and a big cloud of smoke and debris as one of the storage environments took its toll. And every second Friday was a proving day for the big gun barrels. My office was only a quarter mile from the proving butts, and before each session we had to leave our doors half open. A hooter blew before each blast, which was earth-shaking, and if the door was either wide open or shut, sometimes the glass would go. On occasions there would be a long pause after the hooter, and one would assume a misfire and resume activity. And if it involved writing, and the bang then occurred, then there was a bent pen and a nasty blot. The projectiles they fired went down over the Thames marshes, and there was an interesting technique for studying the state of wear on the gun barrel. The large shell went through a series of large hoops filled with paper, rather like those for circus dogs to jump through. And when the rifling of a barrel was badly worn, the projectile went end over end, and the screen showed it in silhouette, a BSO, bullet side on. As far as I know, I was the only Australian in the initial team at Woolwich. We had premises at one other location, at Ford Halstead, near Sevenoaks in Kent, which housed the design and drawing offices. But there were already some Australians at the Atomic Energy Research Establishment, at Harwell in Berkshire, sent there by the Australian government to learn on the job. It being thought that Australia would eventually enter into atomic energy and would need experts of her own. This early Australian team of scientists was built up to eight during the period 1947 to 53, with officers seconded from the Department of Supply and from CSIRO. 
but this was quite specifically for training and experience for the future peaceful uses of atomic energy, and had nothing to do with military uses. Harwell staff were mostly excluded from any access to the work of the Woolwich Group. However, Harwell was working on beryllium metallurgy for possible use in nuclear reactors, known as atomic piles in those days, and of course on uranium metallurgy, and on the extraction of plutonium from irradiated uranium. Several of the Australians at Harwell were involved in some of this work which was later applied in the weapons program, particularly in the production of plutonium and in the chemistry of polonium, used as an alpha particle source to produce neutrons in early initiated devices. I went to Harwell a few times in 1950 for meetings on beryllium and uranium fabrication. We were not allowed to stay in the Harwell accommodation for visitors. We thought it was in case we learned secrets from them, but we found out that it was the other way around. It was in case they learned from us. So during the two years 1949-50, to 50, I worked on the problem of how to produce a fine-grained, machinable beryllium. And I also helped with some of the work on the metallurgy of uranium, particularly on high-frequency induction melting and on design of the facilities for fabricating plutonium. This was to be done using men in frog suits, working from an argon-filled corridor. We found out in 1950 that beryllium is highly toxic to some persons if inhaled. Before that, I was polishing specimens of it with dry abrasives and blowing the dust off. Throughout my career with the atom, I was watched medically in case I developed beryllosis, a dangerous granulosis of the lungs, but fortunately it did not happen. It appears that some people are more susceptible than others, and I was lucky. There were deaths in the United States in the early days, including some of the housewives who washed the dust from their husbands' work clothes. Later, a limit was set for the maximum allowable concentration of beryllium in air in laboratories, and this was available when eventually we built a beryllium laboratory at Lucas Heights. The limit is one microgram per cubic metre, a very small amount indeed, and difficult to measure. However, we had to stop beryllium work at Woolwich in 1950, and defer further fabrication studies until the new beryllium laboratory was available at Aldermaston, and I was heavily involved in its design. In the meantime, I worked on grain refinement in casting of zinc, which has a similar crystal structure to beryllium using powerful ultrasonic vibrations. Unfortunately, I did not get to use the new laboratories at AWRE because I left and returned to Australia, but they were pleased to show me around when I later visited from Harwell in 1954, and it was much as we envisaged in 1950. We decided in 1950 not to stay in England because Australia would provide a better life for our family. And I returned briefly to lecturing in metallurgy at the Newcastle, New South Wales Technical College, which became part of the new New South Wales University of Technology, now the University of New South Wales, while I was there in 1951. I was then invited to a senior lectureship in the University of Melbourne, which I occupied through 1952 to 3. However, I was not happy in the academic life, after the excitement of work in nuclear metallurgy. The opportunity soon arose to return to it when, in 1953, the government passed the Atomic Energy Act and the newly formed Australian Atomic Energy Commission, AAEC, began to advertise for staff. I applied for a position with the new AAEC late in 1953 
and was interviewed shortly thereafter by CSIRO, because the AAEC did not yet have personnel facilities of its own. The interview was conducted by the Chief Executive Officer of CSIRO, Dr F.W.G., later Sir Frederick, White, and the Deputy Chairman of the new AAEC, Professor J.P., later Sir Philip Baxter. They were obviously interested in the fact that I'd already had two years of experience with nuclear metals. It was a funny interview in some ways because we kept circling around the facts. I had to tell them I could not discuss my previous work in detail because I'd signed a statement under the UK Official Secrets Act agreeing not to disclose information. I was offered and accepted appointment as a senior research scientist in CSIRO to be transferred to the AAEC on taking up duties in January 1954 and to proceed to England to work at the Atomic Energy Research Establishment, Harwell, for two years to learn on the job. End of chapter 2 Australia's Uranium Opportunities by Keith Alder Recorded by Logan Smith with the permission of the Alder family Chapter 3 The Harwell Training Years I reported for duty on the first working day of 1954, January 4th, at the Commission's new head office in Beach Street, Coogee, Sydney. Another Australian started on the same day, Dr R.K. Ron Warner, a chemical engineer who had just completed his PhD at the University of New South Wales on chemical extraction of uranium from ores. My first technical assignment was an unexpected one. I walked in and introduced myself to the assistant secretary, Alan Cooper, who was sitting at his desk trying to load an automatic pistol. He had been issued with it to guard the payroll. He asked, did I know anything about these things? Yes, I did. So I showed him how to load it and then proffered some free advice. If bailed up, buy a man with a gun, first give him your gun, then give him the money. Years later, I came to appreciate the administrative skills of Alan Cooper and he was a great loss to us when tragically he was killed in a traffic accident in June 1972. Later that morning, I met Ron Warner and we were both introduced to the chairman, General J.E.S., later Sir Jack Stevens, and the secretary, Patrick Greenland, who was, as we came to know later, a master of the spoken and written word. These two had been respectively chairman and secretary of the Overseas Telecommunications Commission and their administrative skills and experience in working together were tremendous assets to the new commission. Then followed a few days of paperwork and packing and ten days later the Warners and the Alders sailed on SS Himalaya for England for a two-year assignment. In the event we spent four years at Harwell, not two. First class on a near new P&O liner was a bit of a contrast for us as our earlier voyage to England had been tourist class on a mixed cargo passenger boat, Moreton Bay. On arrival at Harwell in February 1954, we were greeted with great interest by the old hands, seven in number now. The metallurgist of the team, Rupert Myers, had left to take the foundation chair of metallurgy at the University of New South Wales. Later, he followed Sir Philip Baxter as vice-chancellor, and Sir Rupert, after retiring, became president of the Academy of Technological Sciences and Engineering. This early Australian team had consisted of three chemists, Dr G. L. Grant Miles, 
J.N. Jack Gregory and D.F. David Sankster. The metallurgist R.H. Robert Myers and chemical engineer Campbell Brodel. An engineer, Dr. O.O. Owen Pulley and two physicists, K.P. Ken Nicholson and Norman Fowle. Another physicist, Dr. A.R.W. Alan Wilson, had returned to Sydney to assist in the early organisation of the commission. Later, one more of the original team, Cam Brodel, resigned and joined Rolls-Royce, and another, Norman Fowle, died while at Harwell. As well as the team at Harwell, there was a nuclear physics group in the School of Physics at the University of Melbourne, under Professor L.H., later Sir Leslie Martin, including scientists from both CSIRO and the Department of Supply. And there were interchanges between this group and the one at Harwell. Several members of the nuclear physics group later played important roles in the early years of Lucas Heights. For example, Dr. J.K. John Parry and his colleague Colin McKenzie did the calculations and supervised the startup of the reactor HIFAR in January 1958. John Parry was later Chief, Division of Applied Physics. Another physicist, O.H. Harry Turner, left Harwell to return to the Department of Supply and became the Senior Health Physicist for Australia at Maralinga. But back in early 1954, the old hands, then at Harwell, were excited because the arrival of Warner and Older signalled to them that something was happening, at last, about atomic energy in Australia. Bear in mind that some of them had been in England since 1946, and at Harwell since soon after it started, and with little or no news of developments which would at last take them home for the activities for which they had been trained. They had made notable contributions to the British program, but they were anxious to return to Australia. I'm afraid we were a bit of a disappointment to them. We did not have any momentous news of practical developments back home. In fact, all we could report was that we too had been sent to Harwell for on-the-job training and experience, nominally for two years. The whole scheme for the secondment of the Australian scientists to the United Kingdom, at the time to the British Ministry of Supply, and later to the UK Atomic Energy Authority when it took over in 1955, was based originally on informal arrangements between the British and Australian governments, later formalised in September 1954 in an agreement for cooperation between the two governments. This was announced by the Minister of Supply, Mr Howard Beale, in October 1954. The informal arrangements for cooperation had begun much earlier. Back in 1944, the British government had requested Australia to prospect for uranium and when the search was successful, arrangements were made for guaranteed supply of Australian uranium for 10 years to the Combined Development Agency, CDA, a joint UK-USA organisation. The CDA financed the development of the Rum Jungle Mine after the discovery of uranium there in 1949. Mining began in 1953. When the United Kingdom Atomic Energy Authority, UKAEA, was formed in 1955, it took over the agreement. At that stage, all seconded AAEC staff were at Harwell, though one officer was attached to the research laboratories of the UKAEA Industrial Group at Windscale soon after, Dr Alan Draycott. The AAEC continued to recruit and post its graduate officers to England, and by late 1955, there was a team of over 50 there, all but one at Harwell. The team included chemists, chemical engineers, physicists, health physicists, metallurgists, 
instrumentation and electronics specialists, and engineers. Nearly all were absorbed into existing research and design groups for their on-the-job training, and some became leaders of groups during the next two or three years. It is interesting to note that all of the Australian seconded staff at that time, except two, were working on topics within the nuclear fuel and nuclear power field. This bears out my statement in Chapter 1. That's what atomic energy was all about in the 1950s. The two exceptions were one man to start the radioisotope business in Australia, Dr Jack Gregory, and one physicist, Mr T.M. Terry Sabine, learning how to diffract neutron beams as a new type of research tool. The leaders of the Australian team were appointed early in 1955 and came to Harwell. Both were New Zealanders. The chief scientist, Charles Watson Munro, had been Professor of Physics at Victoria University College and the Deputy Chief Scientist and Chief Engineer. Dr G.C.J. Cliff Dalton was a Professor of Mechanical Engineering at Auckland. Charles Watson Munro had been in Canada working on atomic energy at the end of the war. He took a leading part in building the first reactor there, at the Chalk River Research Establishment. The Zero Energy Experimental Pile, called ZEEP, and then went to Harwell and was involved in the building of the first reactor there, the graphite low-energy experimental pile known as GLEEP. Cliff Dalton had been a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, and later worked at Harwell where he started the first work on fast reactors. Both were therefore experienced people in the new science and technology of atomic energy. Watson Munro immediately recruited one more New Zealander, an expert in electronics and instrumentation, George Page, to be head of the technical physics section, soon to be deeply involved in instrumentation for the new Australian research reactor. George had been at the Oak Ridge establishment in the USA during the war working on the uranium enrichment plant and had worked at the Chalk River establishment in Canada and at Harwell. The Harwell administration gave both Cliff Dalton and Charles Watson Munro offices in Hangar 10, one of the remaining buildings from the wartime fighter aerodrome on which the research establishment had been built. Charles' office became the headquarters of the AAEC group at Harwell and we had it until the bulk of the team returned to Australia. We also were able to retain the services of a full-time secretary for the group, Dorothy Godfrey. The AAEC staff seconded to Harwell were accepted as attached staff and worked as normal members of research groups within the Harwell Divisional Organisation. Coincidentally, at about the time Warner and Alder arrived at Harwell in February 1954, the UK Ministry of Supply decided also to accept attached staff from British industry, in particular from companies likely to be involved in the future nuclear industry. For example, companies such as C.A. Parsons, English Electric, GEC, Metropolitan Vickers, Bristol Sidley, AEI and Rolls-Royce. In order to give these company-attached staff a flying start, the director, Sir John Cockcroft, decided to establish a training school at Harwell, the Reactor School. Early in 1954, a trial was undertaken, a dummy run organised largely by senior engineer of the establishment, Dr B.L. Goodlett. He undertook some of the lecturing himself, assisted by various senior members of Harwell staff, including another senior engineer, Mr R.V. Dick Moore. Goodlett and Moore later were the principal designers of Britain's first nuclear power station, Calder Hall. 
I asked to be allowed to attend the course and was accepted. All of the others attending were from British industry, and all were engineers except two, myself and another metallurgist, G.E. Raz Darwin, and we became firm friends. He was from Metropolitan Vickers at Trafford Park, Manchester. There was one other Australian in that first course, R.D. Roger Vaughan, then with C.A. Parsons of Newcastle on Tyne. I had known him earlier at Melbourne University. Later, he was the senior engineer on the construction of the first two commercial nuclear power stations in the UK, Bradwell and Berkeley. The Dummy Run Reactor School took about four months of full-time study and covered basic reactor physics and engineering, nuclear materials and the possible nuclear fuel cycles and health and safety. We all had to do a reactor start-up on GLEEP, and at the end of the course we obtained a light-hearted certificate Bachelor of Reactor Engineering, and can now style himself B-O-R-E. Some later courses qualified with a Diploma of Pile Engineering, D-O-P-E. The course was a very valuable general introduction to nuclear engineering and the state of the art as it was then, in 1954, as all the lectures were given by senior staff at the forefront of nuclear knowledge. Those of us who attended the first, the dummy run of course, formed a Reactor Guinea Pig Society, which met a few times later in the 1950s. But after the members returned to their companies and the British nuclear industry got underway, building the first commercial nuclear power plants, opportunities ceased. But an old boys network remained, and provided useful contacts later. In the early years of atomic energy, it was very important to know one's counterparts overseas, for there was very definitely an international club of the leaders. I suppose this was caused largely by the subject being a brand new technology. After my attendance at reactor school, I was given a research assignment in metallurgy division to investigate ways of fabricating uranium metal fuel elements with zirconium cladding, with the cladding metallurgically bonded to the fuel for a good heat transfer. I worked on this for most of the next two years, but then an increasing amount of my time was spent on planning for the Australian Research Establishment and the AAEC research program but I produced some reports and one patent. And I think left behind at least one valuable contribution, the high-frequency induction heating for grain refinement of uranium fuel bars for the Magnox power reactors. This was the patent for most of us, and there were many reports and publications by the AAEC attached staff. Of course, there were many more by the old hands who had been at Harwell for years before the rest of us. The most senior member of the initial Australian group, Owen Pulley, made a trip to Australia late in 1954 to assist in commission planning and on his return to Harwell was pleased to inform the group that action to start the research establishment in Sydney was underway. The site was to be at Long Bay near Maroubra on land occupied by the Long Bay Rifle Range. This Cliffbrook project, named after the name of the old house at Coogee, which had become the AAEC head office, had a short lifetime because when Charles Watson Munro was appointed as chief scientist, the commission agreed that a research reactor would be essential if Australia was to have a significant atomic energy research program, and it was realised that a larger site would be required. General Stevens was able to assist in finding a site, partly on army land at the edge of the Holsworthy Military Reserve, and part on state land, in the area known as Lucas Heights the present site of the ANSTO CSIRO laboratories, and construction of the research establishment began there in October 1955. 
The first major work was to be the building of the High Flux Australian Reactor, HIFAR. We were fortunate to obtain the design of this reactor from the UK. Both Watson Munro and Dalton were convinced from their earlier atomic experiences that a research reactor should have a high neutron flux, particularly if it was required to test reactor materials and produce useful beams of neutrons. The materials testing function requires a neutron flux or intensity as high as possible so that the testing of proposed reactor components, including fuel elements, can be carried out in shorter times than the proposed reactor use. Otherwise, experiments may take too many years to perform. At that time, the same requirements were being met in the UK with the design and construction of a new high neutron flux research reactor at Harwell. Several of the Australian group were already involved in this project, then known by its engineering design number E443. Later, the reactor was christened Dido, and eventually there were five more of its type. The high flux Australian reactor, HIFAR, was the second and was followed by a second reactor at Harwell, Pluto. Then, one at the Downray Research Establishment in the north of Scotland. The Downray Materials Testing Reactor, DMTR, and similar reactors at Julich in Germany and Rizzo in Holland. The UK AEA and the AAEC agreed that Australia should use this design and Project AE443 began, following the UK reactor almost exactly a year behind it. This had tremendous benefits for the Australians as many teething troubles were met and overcome, and following on the British experience, we were able to save both time and money. Watson Munro made an interesting staff decision as soon as the research reactor project was agreed, that although the reactor would be managed by the professional engineers, the remainder of the shift operating staff would consist of ex-naval engine room personnel accustomed to learn the drill for every eventuality and then to carry it out without stopping to ask questions in an emergency. Fortunately, there was never such an event, but at the outset of HIFAR's history, the capability of the shift operators was comforting as we learned the characteristics of the system. The man to lead these workers was appointed early and was the only non-professional officer in the AAEC team at Harwell. He was Mr. Charles Charlie Logan, who was for many years the senior technical officer on HIFAR. His boss during reactor construction, Mr. W.H. Bill Roberts, had been an engineer officer in the RAN during the war, and those two understood one another perfectly. When construction started, several of the Australian engineers came back to Australia, led by Bill Roberts, who was later to be the head of engineering services. Dr Grant Miles also returned to take general control of the Lucas Heights site until the arrival of the chief scientist. One amusing event occurred at this time, when Watson Munro was preparing to return to Australia to take charge of the construction of the research establishment, he took delivery of a new car under the personal export scheme then operating in the UK, which minimised various taxes. Many of the Australians did likewise, with cars and household items, including television receivers. TV started in Australia in 1956, and sets were much cheaper this way. When the Ford car arrived for Charles, we were all delighted to note the registered number, AE443, the title then of the AAEC research reactor. This was pure coincidence, but did lead to some ribald comments about the source of the funds. Before Watson Munro left Harwell, he and Cliff Dalton formed three planning committees of the senior officers in the Australian group. 
The commission had advertised for its section heads early in 1955 and appointments were announced mid-year. Not surprisingly, most of the positions were filled from existing staff. After all, that was what the training was all about. The section heads were Chemistry, Dr Grant Miles Chemical Engineering, Mr Carl Berglin Radioisotopes, Dr Jack Gregory Metallurgy, Mr Keith Alder Technical Physics, Mr George Page Engineering Research, Dr Owen Pulley Medical Research, Dr George Watson Engineering Services, Mr Bill Roberts No appointments were made at that stage to the Health Physics and Future Physics, Neutron and Reactor Physics sections. But later back in Australia, Dr A.R.W. Allen Wilson was appointed Head of Health Physics and Dr J.L. John Simmons Head of Physics. The committees were firstly the Committee of Australian Section Heads, CASH, for overall planning of the future research establishment and its research program, and three committees for detailed planning, the Research Committee, the Buildings Committee, and the Equipment Committee. CASH had an overview and coordinating role, including general site planning. The committees for planning buildings and equipment were necessary because the nature of atomic work often required premises and apparatus unknown before in Australia, and there was a large flow of correspondence between Harwell and Coogee for several years as buildings were planned and equipment ordered. Cliff Dalton chaired the research committee, which was to prepare proposals for the Commission on the future program. After Watson Munro left for Australia, the research committee and cash really became the same thing. The title, Petty Cash, was being applied by the humorists. The role of the equipment committee at the outset was to list the basic requirements for the establishment, i.e. things which the section heads knew would be needed irrespective of the details of the future program. For example, analytical chemistry needs, radioactive counting and measuring equipment, workshop machine tools, and some expensive capital items for the metallurgists for the fabrication of nuclear materials. A stores and purchasing officer was an early appointment back in Australia, and we began sending lists back to him to start buying, because many items were on long delivery times. He had a difficult job, and much of what we wanted was unique in Australia at the time, but he handled it very capably. And Mr W.E. Bill Burns became a local identity because of his personality and sense of humour. The metal fabrication equipment was expensive, but was agreed between Watson Munro and myself early in the planning. He had been frustrated earlier in Canada by delays in getting nuclear materials fabricated by industrial firms, and held strong views that the research establishment should be equipped to make its own experimental pieces of nuclear materials. Having had experience of my own at Woolwich in the differences between normal industrial metal fabrication and the requirements for nuclear materials, including matters of purity and health hazards, I held similar views. So early in the activities of the Equipment Committee, we began specification and tender action for major items. Some of the largest items in this early procurement were those for the Nuclear Materials Fabrication Laboratory, including a rolling mill, a large high-frequency vacuum melting furnace, and an extrusion press. This latter item gave us a pleasant surprise. Most extrusion presses in the Western world were of German origin and we received tenders from two German companies, but also one from Australia, quoting a very much lower price. As the specification for the press was somewhat unusual, calling for a thousand tonnes of ram pressure to move at a speed of one foot per second, we were somewhat sceptical. 
The man to run this part of the program was Mr. W.J.K. Bill Wright, and he and I agonised over the decision on this. Eventually, while I was on a visit to Canada from the UK in mid-1957 and about to depart from Montreal for London, Watson Munro called me to fly home to the UK via Sydney and Melbourne, which I did, to interview Vickers Ruwalt about this press. They convinced me, but I must admit that Bill was still sceptical, regrettably having to accept another's opinion. We bought it, and thankfully it worked just as they said it would. The trip Montreal-Melbourne-London had its unforgettable moments, not only for the length of time, flying the Pacific in a piston-engined aircraft the Super G Constellation took 13 hours from San Francisco to Honolulu, 15 hours to Fiji, and 9 hours to Sydney. But on the way home to England, our brand new Bristol Britannia iced up its engines at 2am over India, and we flew on to Karachi at 2,000 feet in warm air, the roughest I have ever met, and then spent four days waiting there for an engine to be changed. Modern jet travellers don't realise how lucky they are. End of chapter 3. Thanks for listening. The next episode will cover chapters 4 and 5, which tell the story of Australia's entry into nuclear research and the birth of the AAEC research program, which called home Keith and many of his associates. The AAEC's early work into high-temperature gas-cooled reactors and liquid metal fueled reactors. The commencement of Australia's first nuclear reactor, the High Flux Australian Reactor, or HIFAR, and the development of its capabilities, and the tough choices that the AAEC made upon review of its international counterparts.